Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that we possess that truth. We thank you that you've preserved it, protected it, and that it's been conveyed to us. More than that, we thank you for the work of your spirit that has caused us to believe, that has changed our hearts, granted us salvation, guaranteed our future, planted your Holy Spirit in us, and given us life. Father, I pray that you would make us hungry today for you. I, I pray that that appetite that you create in us would not be satisfied, satiated by any other means but you. Father, I pray you grant us courage to be obedient, even if it's costly, to whatever you tell us to do. And I pray that you give us sensitivity to what your Holy Spirit is saying to us today through your word and to our hearts, what you're speaking to us, that we would hear it, understand it, and respond to it. I pray you would guard us from the efforts of the enemy to steal away your glory in our lives, in our church, his efforts to distract us so we don't hear and don't respond. And his work as a deceiver that distorts your word into ways that sometimes fit or suit our own will, our own natures better. But instead, Father, that we'd be conformed to you today by your word, by your spirit. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. We continue today in the book of Acts. We're returning to Acts now. The book of Acts, the Acts of God's Spirit, how God acted through the apostles whose names you know, how God worked and acted through countless nameless people that you will not know in this lifetime, how God worked through the church, how God worked through circumstances, how God worked through the enemies of the church, how God worked through pagan governments, how God worked through cynical, unbelieving religious people, how God worked in spite of circumstances and through circumstances all for his divine purposes, the acts of God. In his commentary in the book of Acts, Bruce Milne describes some, some series of steps that the Holy Spirit has now enacted in the church that are bringing it to the point now as we see the beginning of what looks sort of like modern church. Self-conscious, self-aware, understanding its purpose and mission, having a form of government already, and beginning to fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The commission that God had given them to be His witnesses everywhere. Where they are, where God is sending them, and to places they've never heard of. He says there are a series of these steps, starting with this. It begins with the very heart of God in the Old Testament. Step 1 is the covenant that God made with Abraham that he would make Abraham and Abraham's seed a blessing to all the nations. Remember, that's always been God's intent. From the Old Testament forward, from the book of Genesis on, it has been God's intent to make his glory known among the nations. That's step one. Step two was the Great Commission. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is what he told his first believers. Jesus spoke this in every gospel and in the book of Acts. Step three. The birth of the church at Pentecost, the gift of God's Holy Spirit to make the mission possible. It's not by might nor by power, but by, by my Spirit, God says. And the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost enables the completion of the mission. Step four was the growth of the church and its spread in Jerusalem, culminating in the ministry of Stephen. You remember Stephen who stands and preaches the gospel boldly and dies for its sake. Step five. After Stephen's death, great persecution came on the church, and the result of that persecution was scattering. Acts makes it clear to us that there's never been smooth sailing for the early church. There's never been smooth sailing for the church. There won't be smooth sailing for the future church. But it's through that persecution that God still is exerting his sovereignty. God's still in control. That's the comfort you and I have. When you look around at uncertainty or chaos or even animosity towards the truth, or animosity towards God himself, animosity towards the church that represents God, understand it is God who is still sovereign. And in that persecution, as the church is scattered, we see things like Philip's ministry developing in Samaria. We see an Ethiopian man reach who will take the gospel into Africa. Step, step six, outside of Damascus, the most unlikely of converts, 
perhaps in the history of converts, is miraculously, graciously, totally to the credit and work of God's Spirit, converted. And his name is Saul. And he becomes not just another convert, but he becomes the missionary to the Gentiles. Step seven, the transformation of Peter. Peter, who was growing in his understanding of God, understanding of grace, understanding of God's purpose, now recognizes that it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the circumcised, but it is for the nations that Jesus has come. And he goes to a Roman, a prominent Roman centurion named Cornelius. And as the gospel penetrates Cornelius' heart and household, it begins to spread now in Gentile territory. Step eight was the witness of Stephen's followers in Antioch. And now a church is emerging there, and this church is predominantly Greek or pagan, formerly pagan. It's not Jewish anymore. And step nine, now comes the commissioning of Saul and Barnabas, who take the first missionary journey. And the gospel now is going to go out into Cyprus, and then it's going to go into the Roman province of Galatia. And it won't be long in the book of Acts that we'll be reading something like this. Everyone everywhere was hearing the good news. The move to the ends of the earth has started in earnest, and we see that in Acts chapter 13. So open up with me there, and let's look at Antioch, the hub of the new church. It's no longer Jerusalem. Because of those events I just described to you, it's now moved to Antioch. And this is the place that will send out the first missionaries. Look at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let's look at a few things to note in this passage, and I'm going to go quickly because there are some big points I want to hit, and then there's some that uh, are important, but not as important as the critical ones. But I want you to consider a couple of things. First of all, it's precedence. This is the first true missionary journey. Now, if you have one of those Bible maps or a series of Bible maps in the back of your Bible, or you've seen these, you've looked at these, the missionary journeys of Paul, this is probably the only one that we would rightly call a missionary journey. This is the only one that looks sort of like a modern short-term mission trip. Every other one of Paul's so-called missionary journeys were long-term. Uh, Paul wasn't just about going to speak the gospel in short order, see a few converts made, and then move on to the next city. God used him to establish churches, and he stayed in those places teaching and discipling until churches were well-rooted and grounded and self-sufficient, able to govern themselves and to grow from there. But this was a shorter-term project, and this is the first time that we see, not by circumstance like persecution, but by intentional planning and strategy initiated by the Holy Spirit, that the church and its leadership endorsing it send out missionaries. That's precedence. Second thing I want you to see in, in Antioch, something I think is very fascinating, is the diversity here. And we see diversity in Antioch. The first large city-centered church that we see in Scripture, first one we know anything about, had a pastoral team, not just one, but there was a team of pastors. There were five here, and these five were from three different continents. Now, we have a pastoral team. Uh, so far, we're only covering two different continents. Thanks, Patrick. We're glad you're here to bring up the South America continent, but we're working on it. In Jerusalem, they spoke many languages. The church was birthed in diversity, and now in Antioch, we see it led in diversity, multiculturalism. But the third thing I want you to see is worship and mission and how they're tied together. Worship and mission tied together. The normal routine of the church seems to be something like this. They ministered before the Lord, technically is what that passage says. Some translations will say ministered, some will say worshipped. But their routine of life, their devotional life, was to worship God, accompanying their worship. It was natural to them, not just in special events or in crisis, but to pray with fasting. When you see fasting, prayer is clearly implied. They didn't fast for just no purpose at all, nor did they fast as just some sort of supernatural exercise. It was part of their praying to add focus and intensity and concentration and the ability to hear from the Holy Spirit during their praying. So as they did this, the Holy Spirit leads them. The Holy Spirit gives them direction. 
this wasn't their initiation. This wasn't their initiative that sent Paul and Barnabas. This was the Holy Spirit's. People didn't call Paul and Barnabas. God's Spirit called Paul and Barnabas. And when they laid hands on them, they weren't commissioning them per se. They weren't ordaining them as we understand ordination. They were participating in, they were accepting and responding to what the Holy Spirit was doing. And they were saying, we're in this with you. When a church sends out missionaries, our commitment to those missionaries is to say to them, we are in this with you. We believe that God has sent you and called you. And we are going to be part of that process to support what God is doing there. And we're going to pray for you. And we're going to send financial support for you. We're going to give you the help that you need. When William Carey, in the late 1700s, was accepting the call of God to go to a place that was rather dark spiritually in those days, and increasingly is dark, to go into India, he compared going into India as one standing before the edge of a coal mine that he'd never been in before, one that had never been explored, one that no man had ever stepped down into. And he told his contemporaries, I'll go down into the pit if you'll hold the rope for me. And he made them pledge that they would hold the rope for him, and they did. Look at what's happening in this passage. You see worship, and you see mission. Those two things can't be separated. When you and I gather for worship, with the songs that we have sung today, with the truths that we have declared, mostly through singing so far, but as we hear scriptures today declaring them too, that's when we're, we're magnifying God. We're saying, this is who God is. This is the glory of God revealed to us. This is God who loves us. This is God who's acted in history. This is God who's acted in our history, in our story, in our lives. This is God who has made himself known and desires to be known. This is God who is good. This is God who's merciful. This is God who is just. This is the God who will judge the nations, and we declare his glory to him and to one another in worship. But mission exists for the same reason, that those who don't yet know him would know his glory. And so one fuels the other. As we worship, as we think about the goodness of God and the purposes of God and the ultimate plans of God, that ought to push us out to tell other people about God. If this is who God really is, and this is who you really are, and this is what the future really holds, and this is what the gospel offers you, then in our worship and celebrating those things, we are compelled, we are empowered, we are commanded to send, to go out, to tell. But I want you to see this big overarching truth through those first several verses. It's fasting and prayer that God used as a catalyst for the mission. Here's what I'm afraid of. Here's what I'm guilty of. Far too often our own experiences, our own education, our own sense of, I don't know, sufficiency, ability, calls us to plan things and design things and then attempt things. And then after the fact, after they've already been planned and decided and enacted, we ask God to step in and now, God, will you bless this thing? But we see something opposite in the early church. We see the catalyst being people before God's face, worshiping him, expecting and waiting, and then responding when God speaks. And that ought to be our pattern. And that really is a sermon in itself if I wanted to stop there, but I'm not. If I wanted to stop there, I would say, listen, that's our challenge, church. Our normal routine ought to be this. We're engaging God. We're worshiping Him. But we're praying for sensitive hearts. We're asking and expecting God to speak. And when He does, we respond and we do what He says. And where does God want to send us? Who among us does God want to send out? And how will God use us to support them? I, I pray you'll be praying for that. Fasting and prayer. But as soon as they are endorsed, as soon as they are prayed for and blessed and sent out, opposition comes. And you need to know that's the pattern. You need to know that's normal and typical. Some of you are going to get excited. You're going to get, you're going to get inspired to go talk to somebody about what you believe, why you believe it, and how the gospel is the answer to their greatest problem. And when you do, you're going to find opposition or difficulty or resistance you may even encounter some animosity and you're gonna think god why this doesn't make sense to me i'm doing what i think you wanted me to do i'm acting in obedience to you i'm responding to what i feel like your holy spirit's been leading me to and when we encounter some difficulty it catches us off off guard it knocks us off balance and we don't know how to respond to that it's normal and natural look at this challenge verse six 
When they had gone through the whole island as, par, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. There's some irony there already. He's Jewish, which the Jewish scriptures make perfectly clear. Without equivocation, magic and all those sort of magical arts are completely forbidden, but now you have this weird character who is a Jewish magician. He's sort of a mystic. He's obviously an advisor um, to those in authority, but he practices some sort of magical arts. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, and I underlined that in my own notes because I thought maybe that's questionable. Here's a smart guy, but even smart people can be duped by deception. So just remember that. Intelligence is no surefire buffer against deception. So he's with Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now one thing we see in early history, particularly with the Romans, is this curiosity about religious stuff. You know, they had so many different gods they worshipped, and the gods that they worshipped, they basically co-opted from the Greeks. They had no problem seeking out new kinds of spirituality or new sources of spiritual power, so it made the gospel a little bit more accessible to them. They're, they're interested in religious stuff, spiritual stuff, particularly if it can do anything for them. So look what happens. They sought to hear the word of God, but Elimus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And that is, that's been the case since the first century, and that's still the case today. I won't quote him exactly right, but Spurgeon once said something to this effect. No one will oppose you on your way to hell. No one will try to stop you. But you purpose to aim towards heaven, and you'll find armies coming against you. And that's true in this world today. If you choose to follow Christ, you are decidedly determining to swim against the tide of culture, opinion. And so, here's someone trying to turn him away. But Saul, who was also called Paul, let me just throw this in for a moment. I know sometimes it's been one of those sort of little clever man-made preaching techniques to talk about how God changed Saul to Paul. That's not really what happened there. So when you're teaching your Sunday school class, your Bible class, your, your life group, or you're sitting with someone in a D group, and, and you say, well, here's what Saul did, and then someone's correct, oh no, he's not Saul anymore, he's Paul. Not really. It's the Greek version of the name versus the Jewish version of the name. Saul is a Jewish version of the name, but God using Saul to go to the Gentiles, he used the Greek version of the name. That's all it is. So when he was converted, it wasn't this grand change. Listen, I'm changing your character, I'm going to change your name too. Thank God he let me keep my name when he changed my character. He let you do the same. And so this is Paul or Saul. But Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't forget that part. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Now listen, if Paul lived in 2022 and he was engaging a Jewish mystic magician on social media like Twitter and his response to him was, you son of the devil, I can tell you a couple things are going to happen. One, his account's going to get locked. <laughs> Number two, he's going to get a wave, a tidal wave of response from Christians and so-called Christians talking about his tone his intolerance, his lack of kindness or gentleness or patience or any of those things. And he's going to get lamb blasted for the way that he responded. But here's something you need to understand about Paul. It was Paul who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about those fruits of the Spirit, like gentleness, kindness, patience. It was Paul who was always encouraging the early church towards love and kindness and forbearance. It was Paul who made one of the defining marks of Christianity, your kindness towards one another. And yet it's Paul setting a precedence for us in how you deal with false teaching. And he calls it out directly and bluntly. There, there's no other way. This is not a derivative form of Christianity. This is not someone dealing with tertiary issues that aren't important for eternal matters. This is someone directly confronting. Remember, this is the person who is trying to persuade this Roman leader from following Christ. And Paul steps up and tells him exactly. And not only that, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, so it's not just Paul getting worked up. It's not Paul just getting cranked up and angry. The Holy Spirit leading him to do this, and he pronounces this on him. You're not going to see. 
And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by, by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished, don't, don't miss this phrase, at the teaching of the Lord. Obviously what he did there, what happened there, and the power of the Holy Spirit bringing about an immediate and temporary judgment on this man opened his eyes and gave opportunity for him to hear, but what changed him was not that temporary event, as miraculous as it was, what changed him was the truth, the teaching of the Word. And that's the same pattern that we saw in Jesus' ministry. Those miracles gave openness, open doors, opportunities, accessibility, granted an audience, a hearing for the Word, but it's the Word that changes the hearts. Here's a couple truths you need to see from this opposition. First of all, there is no advance of the gospel without opposition. There's not, ever, whether you're talking about an individual or whether you're talking about in a city or whether you're talking about in a nation or a region, there is no advance of the gospel without opposition. Why do you say that? Because the gospel is primarily the declaration of the kingdom of God coming now to us in Christ Jesus. Remember, that's how Jesus gave the gospel. Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is here. Repent, believe the gospel. The next command he gave them was, now follow me, in chapter 2. When we see the gospel as God's pronouncement, the God-given pronouncement of a new kingdom, a kingdom that you don't have access to in your current state of sinfulness, rebellion against the king, but whom God will give you access to through repentance and faith, which forgives you of your sins <coughs> and allows you to enter that kingdom, you go from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of light. The ruler of the kingdom of darkness holds firmly to his turf. Jesus invades that turf, and the gospel is the announcement of that invasion. So this is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare, always. It's spiritual warfare if it's just a conversation over a cup of coffee with a friend of yours from work. It's spiritual warfare if it's just you writing a letter to a lost son or daughter who lives in another city or state. It's spiritual warfare when you get on your knees with a burden for someone who's far from God. Because the enemy doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want you to pray that God would grant them repentance. He doesn't want to see their lives changed, their hearts turned towards God. It's spiritual warfare. And in spiritual warfare, confrontation is going to be necessary. But one clear message we have throughout the book of Acts is in these moments of confrontation, we are never alone. Spirit of God is with us. God's Spirit is with us. It's Holy Spirit who was filling Paul. And in those confrontations, God is with us. I want to add one more truth statement to this subsection of our text today. When you've got somebody who's antagonistic towards the gospel, when you've got someone who is strident, you know, really, really oppositional, What's the best means? I use the term apologetic, you know, apologetic, how we explain what we mean, how we defend what we believe. And while I do agree, and I shared this in last Sunday's message, we have a great lack of Christian apologetic understanding. You know, clear sense of what a biblical worldview is, what we believe and why we believe. It's something we always need to be honing. Your best apologetic is truth, laying out the truth. It is not most critical for you that you understand all the nuances of Jewish mysticism, magical arts, in order to present someone the truth. If you were living in the first century and you were speaking to a Roman, it wouldn't be necessary for you to be able to identify rightly the pantheon of Roman gods and what their powers were supposedly. What would be necessary for you is to know the truth. And we see again and again this model of what Paul shared, this consistent model of the gospel, these essential components Jesus sent by God. Jesus, the answer to the covenant of God. Jesus who lived perfectly. Jesus who died sacrificially. Jesus who was raised. Jesus who appeared. There are witnesses. Jesus who's coming again. Over and over and over. Let me just add this as, a, as a, an aside. When it comes to false teachers, whether it's Acts and the context of the church in the first century, or whether it's Calvary or me or you in the context of the 21st century, these are some things we need to remember. False teachers must always be confronted, not coddled. 
If there's false teaching, and I saw this on a tweet, and I, I will borrow it. I saw it on a tweet this week. If you are listening, or you got friends or family members that are in churches that never call out false teachers or false teaching, they should leave that church. That's a legitimate reason to leave that church. There are false teachers and false teachings, and the least loving thing I could do for you would be to inform you of wolves that I'm aware of or false teachings that I see. So false teaching has to be confronted, not coddled. Remember what Jude said? I shared this with you in Sunday's message last week. For, the, for those of you who are here, I said we have to contend for the faith. This is a struggle. This is a fight. It's a faith once and for all entrusted to us. We contend for it, which means we don't concede error, particularly error of the highest degree. degree. And, of course, ultimately love requires this. This is an act of love. It may not seem like it when Paul called that man, you son of the devil, which is, again, somewhat ironic because Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, when he says, you're actually son of the devil, that was the most loving thing he could do. Confront him in his error and his falsehood and his sin because that's his only hope. And we say, well, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to push them away. How much farther can you be pushed away than to be identified as the son of the devil? I don't think he can get pushed much farther away. So what if he got his feelings hurt? So what if he left offended? Truth is the only thing that has the power to enact change. And now he's hearing it. So look at what happens next. And I'm going to do this part just quickly. I'm going to let Paul's sermon rather speak for itself. It's straightforward. It's simple. And in its simplicity, it's profound. Because he's telling the story here. When he presents the gospel, he's telling the story of God. It's the grand narrative of Scripture, what we would call the meta-narrative. What is the big picture? When you, when you pick up your Bible and say, what is this about? It's not a collection of fables or moral examples or tales. It's not like reading Aesop or whatever else you may have read in the past. This is an overarching story. It's the story of God. And listen to how Paul shared it. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. You can mark that. We'll come back to that sometime later. That's John Mark. And you remember there's going to be some conflict later between Paul and Barnabas that's going to cause them to split, and it's over this. We don't know the reasons now. Luke didn't choose to give us that information, but John Mark has now departed from them. And I don't want to speculate because Scripture doesn't here. But now he's departed from them, and it's just Paul and Barnabas. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. You can look on your map. These are two different Antiochs. They're now in Galatia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Wait, I thought you said Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Why is he going to the synagogue? Just because God called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles does not mean that he abandoned his own people. And we see the same pattern emerging again and again and again in Paul's missionary efforts and Paul's work. They would go to the synagogue where the Jewish people would be gathered. And remember, not just Jewish people, but what the scriptures might refer to as God-fearers, sometimes just nominally religious people, or people seeking truth. And they would go there to the synagogue, and in the synagogue, the scriptures would be read, which would give him something to key off of or speak to, and as a teacher himself and recognized as such, he would have opportunity to speak up in those places. So it's a built-in opportunity, and we see it again and again. So in the synagogue, on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue and sits down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, and remember what Jesus said about the Law and the Prophets, they all speak of him. When he was sharing the gospel with those people on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection, he shared with them all of the law and prophets and how they all pointed to him. The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So again, you see Paul, you see Barnabas, Jewish men who believe in Jesus the Messiah, rightfully recognized there. You have something to say, please bring it. Again, this was commonplace in synagogues. Synagogues were places where information would be shared, news would be passed on, encouragements would be given, because there's a sense of commonality and brotherhood across Jews everywhere. So given that opportunity, verse 16, so Paul stood up. Motioning with his hand, he said, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, why do you, you know, just calm, why are you doing this all with your hands and everything? I mean, just put your hands down. I got it. You're making me nervous. Well, that's what you do when you're preaching. Your hands are flying all over the place. That's because that's what the Bible says. <laughs> Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. Men of Israel and you who fear God. So you see those two categories? Jewish people, 
religious-minded Gentile people, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. This is the story of Joseph, 400 years in the land of Goshen, the development and building of a nation. And then as they fell into slavery, he sends a deliverer named Moses. It's through the uplifted arms of Moses that God allows their deliverance. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness through their rejection, rebellion, their desire to go back to Egypt. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, you know, conquering those new nations, he gives them their land as an inheritance. He drives out nations, Jebusites, and the city of Jericho, etc. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Now, if we stop right there, I'm just imagining Paul in the synagogue giving this message, and I can imagine all those Jewish people going, yeah, amen, brother, preach it. They're loving this. They're loving the story of Abraham and Moses and David. Then you get to verse 23. Of this man's offspring, David's, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Imagine the room getting still. Before his coming, John, John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul's speaking adroitly with great skill to this diverse audience, Jew and Gentile. And he begins at creation. As he begins at creation, he unfolds, and we probably just have a summary. I imagine the message is a little bit longer, a little bit more elaborate than what we have recorded for us. But we see this comprehensive story from the very beginning, God. God's purposes among the nations. God's purposes through his people. But not for those people alone, but for the sake of all nations. He sends, as part of his covenant promise to Abraham, fulfilled through the line of David, prophesied of, foretold of, declared, announced by John the Baptist, Jesus. He's laying out a series of signposts. And all of those signposts along the road are pointing to one person, Jesus. When God promised Abraham, who did he have in mind? Jesus. When God delivered his people from slavery out of the land of Egypt, who was he foreshadowing? Jesus. When God gave a king, a man after his own heart, he was establishing a royal line for the sake of Jesus. All this points to Jesus. So imagine as he's giving the story of Israel's history, most of it they're very, very proud of. He said it was all pointing to one person named Jesus. Now this is where the sermon gets confrontational. This is where it begins to be a little bit more in their face. The declaration of Jesus as Messiah. When we say Messiah, we're talking about the promised one. Not a promised one. He's not a messianic figure. He's not a type of Messiah. He's not a type of Christ. This is the one all the scriptures have pointed to. Everything is about him. Everything points to him. The whole story is because of him. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Both those audiences. To us has been sent this message of salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, you know, the Jews... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the religious community, the, cent the centerpiece of Judaism, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And that is a very powerful statement. Every Sabbath, year after year, Generation after generation, they read these prophets, and they didn't understand that they were pointing to Jesus. And in those prophecies, not only is Jesus fulfilling the prophecies of himself and his coming, they are fulfilling the prophecies about them and their rejection. They're showing those Old Testament prophecies to be true, because not only do they predict 
not only foretell that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming, they also foretell that to his own people he will not be received. And in their very rejection, they're fulfilling the Scriptures. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. So that's a grave accusation against the Jews. This was not a righteous execution. This was not legitimate nor lawful. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, I mean, they fulfilled all of it, every part, every prophecy, they carried them out. They took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. And the most important words in all of Acts chapter 13 are these, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. I want to point that out. I don't want to belabor the time I spend talking to you this morning, but I want you to see that in those early sermons of the first century church, it was always included the appearances of Christ. And one of the reasons that's so critical is because this is something that would deny them any sort of refutation of the message. They couldn't say what didn't happen because there were still contemporaries of the resurrection. There were still people around that Paul could reference and said, ask so-and-so, they were there. There were still many people who saw the risen Lord still alive. So it was, he was raised, we saw him. Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's a throne that goes forever and ever without end. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus is eternal. He is glorified. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He decayed. He was not raised. By the way, if you're looking for something uh, good and biblical and clever to put on your tombstone one day, let it be that. For Bob, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That's a pretty good... That's a pretty good uh, uh, whatever that thing is. I feel like the president all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> sorry, that thing you say at people's funerals. <clears throat> now I lost you, now I gotta get y'all back. <laughs> Don't send me an email. Um, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. And this is critical. Listen to what he said. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. See, Habakkuk said that, I'm going to do something so big, so amazing, but you still won't believe it. He said, make sure that's not true of you. Make sure right now as you hear this, that's not true of you, that prophecy is not yours. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Come back again. Tell us more. Tell us again. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. You may have filled in some of these blanks already, but let me hit the highlights. First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Again, as I said, not just the prophecies about himself, but the prophecies about them. The fact they didn't believe confirms the Bible. But he says, now to this generation to whom the gospel is gone, don't let that be about you. He's not only the fulfillment of prophecy, he's the culmination of history. This whole story from beginning to end leads to, points to, and is about Jesus. And this is critical. Though condemned and killed, he was raised. And that's most important. If you were to single out the most important element of the gospel, it's the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just the teachings nor the miracles. It's not just the perfect life. It's not just the sacrificial death. Most critical is the resurrection because the resurrection is what validates all that I've just mentioned. And it demonstrates that he is God. It demonstrates he was effective in his purpose in defeating sin and death. And it gives us the hope of his return. He was raised. And in that challenging section of the message where he has been so clearly in their face, I mean, you can't miss it. They wouldn't have missed it. You crucified him wrongly. 
you didn't believe, just as the Scripture said you wouldn't, you were guilty with a blood guilt on your hands. Even though you're guilty, there's good news. The manner in which we value the good news, the level to which the good news holds great worth to us, is directly in correlation to our own sense of guilt, our need for it. Because there would be nothing but, but consternation, despair, if he had left it without the offer of good news. You crucified an innocent man. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior who's come. And guess what? You lost. You thought you killed him, but he's alive. Now what are you going to do? Where does that leave you? Because he's coming back as judge and king, just as all those prophecies have told you. And that would be the worst news. That's the worst news. That when we see Jesus, it's the great revenge tour of the Messiah, the great judgment against all my enemies. But he says this, in this word of, of hope, by him everyone who believes is freed. Freed from everything you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Judgment, condemnation, and bondage. Judgment for sin and condemnation for it and the slavery that sin brings. Moses can't do that for you. Sacrifices can't do that for you. Following the law can't do that for you. Only Jesus can do that for you. And so there's good news, forgiveness and freedom for all who believe. And all that's grace. All that's grace. I mean, you can't help but see that in the story, right? This is everything that God was doing in the world. These are all the ways that you refused it, rejected it, and opposed it, denied it, hated it, killed it. And yet, in your very act of rejection against God, God is offering you grace. The very act of your grand rebellion, the crucifixion, is the means by which God is offering you forgiveness and salvation. All this is about grace. All this is about the goodness of God and the offer of God. And then, in the last part of this, is a passage that one contemporary pastor says is like reading this and all of a sudden a stick of dynamite goes off in your hand. And listen to what he says. Remember, they'd ask him to come back the next Sabbath, so he does, verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. I mean, something is amazing here. And now the crowd is huge. But when Jesus, I mean, sorry, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. A week ago, they welcomed him until they realized what he had to say that confronted them, convicted them, condemned them. And so now they're opposing him. When you understand the gospel rightly, there really are only two responses. You're going to embrace it or you're going to oppose it. You're going to embrace it because it offers you something that you can never get on your own or any self-effort or through any religious system. You embrace it because the generosity and goodness of God undeserved has been granted to you, and you say, thank you, God. Or you oppose it because it says that you're guilty, that you deserve punishment and condemnation, that you're a wrongdoer, and you say, whoa, 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 I won't, I won't accept that. I reject that. If you would tell me I've done wrong or that I'm guilty or that I deserve any punishment. And so now they reject it. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out how? Boldly. Man, that's just, there's so much truth, there's so much meat on this bone, I'm going to leave a lot on the plate for you today, but, man, our tendency, I'm afraid, today is this, when there's pushback, and I don't even mean hard pushback, gentle pushback, resistance even to what we're saying, what we're believing, man, we back off fast. Well, I don't want to, I don't stir up anything. Let's just not talk about that. What would you like to talk about? Let's talk about sports. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to lose any friends over this. I don't want to get caught up in all that. They got major pushback, and their response to pushback was boldness, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside. And catch this phrase, the self-condemnation of unbelief. Listen to the self-condemnation of unbelief. And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. When you hear the truth of what sin is and who God is and how God responds to sin, when you don't respond also to his offer of forgiveness and grace, you're condemning yourself. 
So when people say something like, I can't believe a loving God would send anyone to hell, you can say, I, you know, I can't believe that either, but I can believe that millions and millions of people will condemn themselves because they will deem themselves not worthy of eternal life. How are they deeming themselves not worthy of eternal life? Because they're not accepting the grace given for them that God loves even me, a sinner. So self-condemned because of unbelief. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Because the Jews have refused, we'll turn to the Gentiles. And so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And he's quoting Isaiah, by the way, Old Testament. Always God's intention. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you catch that? Who believed? Those who were appointed to believe. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. We get uncomfortable with that verse. That's one of those verses a lot of people will try to invert the order. You know, they believed and so they were appointed. Or they'll try to explain away the plain meaning of the passage. But you can't escape it. There's an appointment of God happening here. There's an intervention of God that's causing belief to take place. In his commentary on Acts, R.C. Sproul says it this way, the only reason anybody was saved out of that ungodly mass of people who were blaspheming and criticizing the preaching of the Word of God was that God intervened in the hearts and translated them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's God at work. You see, what this passage is telling us is the sovereign work of God's grace. When we are saved... To whom will we credit that great salvation? And how will it infuse our worship? We've already heard from Paul these words. Verse 38, Let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything that you could not be freed from by law of Moses. We already hear of the human responsibility of man. Anyone who believes can be freed from sin and condemnation and death. But now we see the appointing work of God. And the central truth of this subsection of the text is this. The appointing work of God is not incompatible with the responsibility of man. We may not understand the compatibility, but it doesn't make it incompatible because the Scripture teaches us both. He's already told them, you've judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life by refusing to believe. He's also said anyone who believes can receive this gift of salvation, freedom and forgiveness. But now he's saying those that God has appointed See, the passage makes it clear that believing is the consequence, not the cause of God's appointment. Believing is the consequence, not the cause of God's appointment. In other words, because we believe, then God appoints us. No. Because God appoints us, we believe. It's the consequence of the decree. And this is much like Jesus taught in John chapter 10. Jews gathered around Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 24, and said, How long will you keep us in suspense if you're the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. Tell us plainly, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in the Father's name bear witness about me. And then he drops this bomb on them. You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now notice the order here. He didn't say, you, because you do not believe, you're not among my sheep. No, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Why? Because my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep I give eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You don't believe because you're not of my flock. My flock will believe, and they'll follow me. The Father gave them to me. And then we see in this text that God's appointment or decree, when he appoints He's not simply appointing to possibility or opportunity. He's appointing to certainty. Those that God appoints believe. As many as were appointed believed. And this is exactly what Paul would write later to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If he chose, he takes it all the way to the end. God's appointment is a certainty. 
But how should that make us feel? What should the effect of that be on us? It's humility. It's humility. That God would reach down to me? And that's a lifetime of worshipful gratitude. And that's the second effect. Gratitude. Thankfulness. Thank you, God, for saving me. I didn't deserve this. You snatched me from the flame. You rescued me from darkness. You delivered me from Satan's kingdom. And it also should have the effect of hope on us. Hope for the hardest to reach among us. Hope for the most hardened among us. What obstacle is sufficient to stymie God's grace? What obstacle? None. And that's why we pray, hoping and expecting that God will grant salvation, that God will grant repentance to belief. And God is at work. And this confidence in God at work throughout persecution and opposition, difficulty, it's what continues to fuel the mission. God, we will keep going, and we will keep speaking, and we will keep trusting. And we'll see you continue to work. I'll leave you with one big question. It's a personal one. What then will you do with this Jesus? It was prophesied that generations would not believe, will you? Will you let that prophecy be true of you, that I'm doing a grand thing among you, a great thing in your day, something so great you would not believe even if someone told you? Well, I'm telling you. So don't let that prophecy be true of you because everyone who believes is offered freedom and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, so many challenges in this text for us today. So, so many. God, on the one hand, I pray for us to listen to the voice of your Spirit because I, I want to see, and I know many do, and I suspect we ought to be seeing people called out. I mean, called out to hard places to do hard things, and, and we're called to support and encourage and bless and hold the rope for them. So, God, make that so. God, I'm also convicted of our our insufficient praying. I, I'm convicted of our, I don't know, our, self of, our sense of self-sufficiency that we pray after the fact or we pray when our plans go awry. Father, may our normal routine be seeking your face and listening to your voice and being obedient to you in all things. And Father, I thank you for the story of the gospel or if there's anyone here today who's never responded to that, never received that. It's not one method among many. It's not one school of thought in competition with the other, other systems in this world. It's your story for humankind. And it's all centered in Jesus. And to reject Jesus and reject the offer of forgiveness and freedom is to judge ourselves unworthy of it. Why would we do that? Why would we condemn ourselves? God, may that not be so. Father, I thank you for the offer that all who believe, even as Jesus said in John chapter 6, whoever comes to me, I'll not cast out, I'll receive them, I'll raise them up on the last day. So Father, stir up belief in us. Grant repentance to us. Save us. And we will give you glory. We will be like those Paul wrote of in Ephesians chapter 2. Nothing to boast of. Save Christ alone and His grace. And Father, grant us boldness in the face of opposition. It's a spiritual war out there, and we're trying to advance your kingdom. And Satan wants to stop the advance. Find us faithful. Find us useful. And God, lead us. Lord, I pray you have your will in each of us now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.